Good morning, everybody. All right, so I'm going to be doing a reading from uh, Acts 17. Um, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, not taking, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're here, all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. The word of the Lord. Uh, so. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have to come and hear your gospel and, and hear your word. I thank you for the preparation from Pastor Matt, and I just pray that you would uh, speak through him and open up our hearts and our ears and our minds to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. If you're new, my name is Matt Ortiz, and uh, my, it is my hope that you feel welcome here, like part of the family. It feels like you've come home. Uh, for all of you, or just all of you, whether this is you've been here forever or not, thank you for being here. Uh, it's an encouragement to me to know uh, that we have brothers and sisters, a church family that, that, that carve out time regularly on a Sunday morning to meet together, to encourage each other, uh, and to, to focus on who Jesus is and what he has done and worship him together. So thank you for being here. If you're new and we haven't talked yet, Please, please uh, introduce yourself to me uh, after uh, the, the service is over. I would love, love to get to know you. Um, we're in a, in a series, in the middle of a series called you know, Back to Our Roots. And this week, as is, is I was preparing, taking a little break, I was, you know how Facebook shows you old memories, you know, from eight years ago or 12 years ago or whatever, certain photos come up. And I was looking at some of those old photos this week, uh, photos that were uh, uh, from days many, many years ago and many, many pounds ago, <laughs> probably eight or nine belt loops ago, give or take. And, and the pictures, I mean, when you see old photos like that, you can't help but reflect on your roots. And when we do, something I think profound happens. You look back at where you came from, the good and the bad, and it can help us better understand who we are today. We forget sometimes, unless we look back. I think one of the reasons that God gave us this book of, of Acts is so that we can look back on these snapshots of the very first churches and, and remember our roots, remember that who we are and what we're supposed to be all about. And that's exactly what we're doing in this series called Back to Our Roots. In our story this morning, we see a whole city turned upside down. 
Out of nowhere, a revolution explodes throughout the streets. An angry mob threatens innocent people, and these same innocent people face harsh judgment, not only from the mob, but also from the city officials. And the city is called Thessalonica. This is not the first time we see this in, in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, the leaders in Philippi were, were, were witness to this great uproar throughout their city. And in chapter, city, in chapter 17, the city authorities there see the same thing happening in, in their location. And so the, the question is, what in the world was happening? I mean, what was it that it was advancing through the land with the power to, to turn entire cities upside down? It was not a mighty army. It was not a band of terrorists. It was not a pandemic disease. It was something completely and totally unexpected and countercultural. It was blessing and truth and grace and healing and changed lives. A new way of living that totally challenged the status quo in that culture. And all of it was because of one unequaled power, a power known as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. How in the world could good news be disturbing? How could that cause an uproar and turn the city upside down? Here's the deal. When the gospel advances in our lives, when the gospel advances in our church, when the gospel advances in our city, you can expect to see our world and the world around us turned upside down. The way things have always been begins to crumble and, to, and it makes way for renewal. And those who are threatened by change hate that and will fight that. But others who know their need for renewal and the need for the city to be renewed and our neighborhoods to be renewed, they end up finding joy, peace, and strength in the midst of all of the upheaval. So my question is this. Why don't we see more of that? You know, most of us live busy lives with schedules packed with our precious plans right? And if our plans get disrupted, derailed, whatever, we lose our minds. We get stressed, we get anxious, we get angry. Two-year-olds throwing a temper tantrum have more poise than most adults stuck in traffic. It disturbs us. You get a note from your kid's teacher saying that your kid was disruptive in class, you probably don't give him a high five when he gets home. You probably high five his backside, right? <laughs> well, why? Because disruption, we don't view that as a good thing. But here's my hope for us this morning. My hope is that by the time we're done talking here this morning, that you would think maybe what I need most in my life, maybe what I should be praying for and hoping for is more disruption. Who's on board? Who's on board? One, two people. No. We'll see by the time we're done. 
Let's start with our first question, if you're following along uh, with a handout in the bulletin. First question is this, what turns the world upside down? Well, verse 1 says that Paul and his team came into Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, to talk about Jesus. Now, in that day, in that time, in that place, the synagogues would give out-of-town teachers time to read the scriptures and to talk with the people who were gathered there. And the apostle Paul used to be a leader of a movement trying to shut down you know, Christianity. I mean, and, and leveraging just force and, and apply great persecution to, to the Christians. That's, that was his job, and he was the leader of that movement. But one day, he met Jesus, his life was turned upside down, and then he became the main leader of the movement that advanced Christianity. And he advanced it everywhere. And everywhere he went and everywhere where he shared the message of the gospel, there was disruption. So he knows, Paul shows up here in Thessalonica and he knows that it's a difficult message for people to understand, uh, let alone embrace. And so the author of the book of Acts, which is Luke, by the way, he, the, the author highlights the apostle Paul's approach to communicating this, this disturb, this this disturbance, this, this message that creates disturbance. He, the author uses four words to describe how Paul delivered his message. And, and it says that he reasoned with them. He was explaining and proving and proclaiming. Now, if you know the story of the Apostle Paul, you know that he had a dramatic conversion. I mean, knocked him off his horse, blinded him. He eventually got his sight back, but it was just this powerful uh, experience with Jesus. But his method here shows that he believed that the normal process for someone coming to know and trust Jesus is a process a process that involves thinking and reasoning and interaction and questions and, and answers and patience. The, the words explaining and proving tell us that, that he's welcoming questions. He's expecting questions. He's inviting them to ask questions. He's listening to them. He's answering to them. They have a two-way conversation. He, he's helping them apply the scriptures to, to their expectations and presuppositions and thoughts of, of his listeners. And so for us, Whenever we have gospel conversations with people, whether it's person to person or in a group, especially when it comes to people who are not familiar with the message of Christianity or don't understand the message of Christianity, for us, we're not preaching at them. We're inviting them to, to process the gospel message with us, together. Now, this raises a question, right? If the Apostle Paul was so reasonable, if he was so thoughtful, if he was so, so patient and calm, then what in the world caused all of this disruption? It was his message. It was the message of the gospel. We have a summary in verse 3 when Paul says that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah. That right there, 
You may have heard it before, but let me tell you right now, that message right there is what turned that city upside down. Okay? Especially three words. It was necessary. You know, Jesus uses those same, I think it's important to remember that Jesus uses those same words in Luke chapter 24, when, when uh, after, after his resurrection, he encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and, and they, didn't, they didn't recognize him, and, and, and they never imagined that this Messiah that they've been expecting, that has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the one that would deliver him, they never thought that their hero would suffer, that he would die, let alone rise again from the dead. They never, it never even entered their imagination. And so Jesus tells them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Both Jesus and Paul and all of the writers of the scriptures tell us that from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, when those scriptures are rightly understood, it leads to one conclusion. And that one conclusion is that it was necessary for our Savior to suffer. And it's our fault. For God, it was necessary because of us and our sin. It was necessary for God to become a man and to die on the cross for our sin and then to rise again unto new life to give us life. Now that message, if that message has not turned your world upside down, then you don't get it. You don't get the gospel. You don't get Christianity because if you did, your, your life would be turned upside down. And I'll explain a little more as we move on here. <laughs> there are countless people who think Christians and non-Christians, and I think Christians are to be held responsible for this. There are countless people who think that the message of Christianity is this, to be approved by God, to be accepted by God, to be loved by God, to be blessed by God, you gotta try hard to be a good person. Messages everywhere around the world, especially in, in America, that is a primary teaching of, from most pulpits in, in churches all over the place. They sprinkle little verses in and they completely miss the whole point. They, they, they say, you got to be a good person. You got to agree with these beliefs. You got to apply these biblical principles. You got to follow these 12 rules for living. That, if that were true, that would make the gospel no different than any other religion, no different than any other self-help books that are out there, even if those self-help books have scripture sprinkled in them. Makes it no different. If Paul and Silas showed up, walked into Thessalonica and said, everybody, listen up, we have a, 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 a powerful message for you. We are here to show you how to live a good life, a moral life, a successful life. We even have a few Bible verses for you. That would not have been disruptive. That, that is old news. They would have heard that before. It's no different than what they've heard. It's definitely not good news. 
It's not disruptive. What they did say was, we want to talk to you about your ultimate need. And that your ultimate need is a suffering Messiah who died for you and rose again for you and calls you to submit your entire life to him as your true king. That is a disruptive message. That is a message of a revolutionary. Now, look, my, my hope, and, and I've, my, my hope is that we regularly, and I think it is the case, that, that we regularly have people here who um, aren't Christians, but they're looking into it. They're starting to ask questions. They're beginning to process Christianity again after many years or processing Christianity for the first time. And, and, and maybe that's you this morning, and maybe you have some skepticism. And, and I want to let you all know that I'm so incredibly glad that you're here and that you're thinking through these things and taking them, them seriously. And, and what I want you to know is that it's very common for people to have the impression that Chris, the Christian message is about trying hard to be a better person. It's not. Some people think that Christianity is about maintaining the middle class status quo, about controlling people's behavior or reinforcing a a conservative culture or a liberal culture. That is not what Christianity is all about. It's very common for people to think that or variation of that. Because the gospel says that you and I cannot be good enough. And those who think they are better than you are actually further from God than all the people they look down on. I don't care how long they've gone to church. That doesn't matter. They've missed the point. Because the truth of this is this. People who know their need for a suffering Savior that had to die and rise again for them to give them new life, people who know their desperate need for that, those are the people who are closest to God. People who don't see that need, don't feel that need, they have no need for God. Therefore, they don't know God. And if they go to church, it's just kind of part of the culture. Those who know their need are closest to Jesus. Now, others of you, you guys might be more like me. We have this broken record spinning in your head that says you need to do more, but you can't because you're a loser. Or, you know what? You you can't afford to fail, but you do a lot. Or, you need to be strong, but actually, you're, you're weak. And, and so if you're like me, your spiritual life sometimes feels like this impossible to-do list. And, and, and so to cope, you either fool yourself into think that you're doing okay or, or you're crushed by it. And if that's you, then like me, you need disruption. You don't need a how-to sermon saying, here's how to live your best life now. You need to hear about your need for Jesus and his glorious grace and his love for you and that he's renewing your heart and your life and he's turning your world upside down for your good and the good of the world. See, we're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all weak failures. Uh, Apart from Christ, that is all we are and that's why it was necessary for Jesus to live for us and die for us. That right there is a disruptive message. And so now, let's look 
at the only two responses. That's next. What are the only two responses to that disruptive message? Well, in the passage, how do people respond to this revolutionary message? Well, what we see for sure is that no one was neutral. I mean, it was impossible to ride the fence on this one. Some were persuaded by it and embraced it, and others rejected and fought against it. And, and for some, it stirred up love for Jesus. And for others, it stirred up a mob to attack Paul and Silas and his friends. See, here's the truth. You cannot, the gospel doesn't let you be neutral about the, about the gospel, the message of Jesus demands a response. No choice is a choice. No choice is a rejection of it. And, and here in the story, many of the Jews, not all, many of the Jews vehement, vehemently reject the message. That's one response. They see this new community like forming around the message of Jesus that's totally different than their ways and their culture and, and, and their religion. In verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded to, to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of leading women. That was totally different. And the passage does not go on to say, so those who weren't persuaded responded with thoughtful dialogue with some Q&A. It does not say that. It says they were jealous. Why? Because their social and religious status quo was being challenged. Gentiles and women aren't supposed to be spiritual equals with me. If the message of a suffering and risen Messiah means that I need to admit that I'm a sinner just like them, and they're no different than me, I'm no different than them, that message needs to be stopped. Same thing for the Greeks who rejected it, drove Paul and Silas out of the city. They heard the charges brought against the Christians said they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. The passage does not go on to say, so they launched an investigation and gave them fair trial to hear them out. doesn't say that. Why? Because their social and civic status quo was being challenged. I mean, they don't want to be against Caesar and get in trouble with, with Rome. That would ruin everything. So, Here's what I want you to think about. Right here, right now. Think about your heart. Think about your life. Think about how you've responded to the message. Think about whether or not it's turned your, your life upside down. If you don't want your status quo challenged, then you should reject the message of the gospel. And if your status quo has not been rejected, if your status quo has not been challenged, and you think that you've received the gospel, you should rethink that. Ask God to show you, give you some insight. Because the gospel will turn your life upside down and challenge your status quo. Now, what about those in the passage that were persuaded? It said, what we see is that they received the message. And what we see about the people who received the message, we see a totally new social structure with Jews and Greeks and leading women all living out their new allegiance to King Jesus together. These were people who were willing to have their lives turned upside down to be a part of this 
what felt like a new city to them, even though it came at a great cost. All you got to do is look at Jason, who's mentioned here in this passage. He was this leader in the church of Thessalonica. The Christians regularly would gather and meet and worship in his house. And, and so a mob attacked his house looking for Paul and Silas. They figured he, Paul and Silas were at Jason's house. Verse 6, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Can you imagine if this were your home and then an angry mob started uh, collecting, gathering in front of your house and they all started shouting at you and throwing rocks at your house and breaking the windows and you're in there with your family and other friends and their kids and then they start banging on the door and they finally kick in the door and they overrun your, your household. They absolutely ransack it and they drag all of you out into the front yard and then they, they drag you in front of the, the, the city uh, officials and you are sure that they are going to kill you because of your allegiance to King Jesus. Can you imagine that? You know what? It wasn't too far in our distance or, or near, it wasn't too far back in our our history as a nation, where many people in our country faced that, have experienced that kind of night and that kind of persecution. Our own brothers and sisters in Christ in the South experienced that in ways we never would understand. So, what would you do if that was you? If you were attacked and persecuted and oppressed like that? Well, look what Jason does in verse 9. And when the city authorities had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Commentators say that Jason paid most of the bail, would have paid most of the bail by far to get everyone out. That, that he made this major financial sacrifice. He was willing to sacrifice his possessions so that others could be saved and, and set free. I, I know of people, friends who have either been bailed out or bailed someone out, and they would tell me about it, and, and there was no strings attached, and, and there was, it was just because, the, because of the love they had between them. And because of that love, they were willing to sacrifice. No payback is necessary. And, 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 and um, Jason here was, was willing to cover for Paul and Silas and, and to experience the suffering himself so Paul and Silas wouldn't have to. Does, does that remind you of anybody? You know what? Jason shows us how the gospel leads us to live our lives more and more like Jesus. How, how it breaks the gospel, breaks us free from the status quo to live a life of, of sacrificial love, not just for ourselves. See, this is what Jesus did for us. He left his status quo of, of eternal fellowship with the Father. He moved into our broken world to suffer and, and he took our sin upon himself so that we could be free. And when you are persuaded by that message, then our lives start to look more like Jesus's. All right, so how does this apply to our church and to, to our personal lives? Well, first... As a church, 
you got to know, I mean, it seems like, sounds kind of dumb to say it out loud, but I think it's important to say because sometimes we function on a subconscious level and we need to check ourselves. As a church, we need to have crystal clear clarity that King Jesus did not call us to be as comfortable as possible. King Jesus did not call us to avoid disruption at all costs, to avoid changes, to, to avoid being challenged. He got, Jesus, King Jesus didn't call us to go with the flow of the status quo. See, here's the deal. Religious or irreligious, liberal, conservative, whatever, the gospel gives us a willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of others and God's glory. But so often we just try to avoid it all the time. We try to avoid having our status quo challenged. And, and when you are in a, in a church, when you are in a church community shaped by the grace of King Jesus and, and, and shaped by the rule and reign of King Jesus, it feels like you're part of a whole new society, a whole new city, a whole new people. Because it's totally different than the world. Second, when it comes to our personal lives. This passage, you know what this passage does for us? Or it does for me, and I hope it does for you also. Is this passage forces us to ask, am I too comfortable with my status quo? Am I preoccupied with avoiding discomfort and chasing after comfort? Is, is this keeping me from Jesus and walking with him on, on mission? Is there an area of my life where I'm choosing status quo instead of sacrificial love? These, these aren't rhetorical questions I'm throwing out here. You don't have to answer them out loud, right? But I want you to answer them in your own mind and in your own heart. See, so often, personally, we just go with the flow of the status quo in our marriages and in our families and in our hobbies and our calendars and our attitudes toward our, our work and our priorities, and it doesn't look any different than the rest of the world. No different. Status quo living. It's the difference between rejecting the message of Jesus and receiving it. See, if you have been persuaded by the gospel, then you are willing to have your life turned upside down. And last, what is the charge in our calling? We see this in verse 6 and 7. And when the mob could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, the author here, Luke, made sure that these charges were included for us to read. And I think part of it is because they are ironic. They are both true and false at the same time. They're false in the way that they are intended because Christians were not starting up a new political order or a new political movement or trying to overthrow Caesar. But what was true was that their allegiance to Jesus upset everyone's status quo and turned the world upside down. They called people to follow Jesus as their true king. 
I, I think it's really easy for Christians and or people, church people, to hear this kind of talk and think that I'm talking about somebody else. I'm not like that. It's easy for me to do that, I think. Talking about somebody else. I go to church. I read the Bible. It's not talking about me. It has to do with our identity, I think. I believe in Jesus. He's my king and all that. But functionally, our identity is wrapped up in ourselves and our priorities and what we like and our comfort and, and where we identify, you know, politically or denominationally or whatever it is, our theological camp or whatever, that's where we function from that identity, right? I talk to people whose identity is wrapped up in being a conservative fundamentalist or a, a liberal progressive or their identity is that they're an atheist or agnostic or their identity is they're a patriot. Some people say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Others say, yeah, well, I follow Jordan Peterson and the Dalai Lama. And their identity is wrapped up in that. And, and they overlook... So often, the core beliefs of the gospel say, yeah, yeah, I know, but this is more practical. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know that, I, I agree. You're not talking about me, but this right here, this is where it's at. This, this is what makes my life work and helps me maintain my status quo. And it doesn't look any different. And so often, if you ask enough questions, you see that, that so many of them, overwhelmingly most of them, they share a common core belief. As different as they are, left, right, religious, irreligious, share a common core belief that it all depends on you and what you do. That is not the teaching of Jesus. That is not the teaching of the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of self. You are your own king. And Jesus, if anything, is just some lame religious mascot. That does not turn your world upside down. It maintains your status quo. True Christianity stands in stark contrast to all of that because it doesn't depend, Christianity, the gospel says, it does not depend on you. It depends on what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Put your faith in that. Define your identity by that. It depends on what God has done for you. That message eventually leads thinking people, thoughtful people, to eventually ask a very important question. And the question is, so if God's done everything, what's the point? What's the point if God's done everything for us? I think these verses answer that question. Believing in the gospel gives you a new king that turns your world upside down. Because Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the deliverer who had to suffer and rise for you. It is the end of one reign and the beginning of another. Our king's cross is the end of sin, the end of self, the end of guilt, the end of shame, and it brings a whole new way of living. Totally different. 
And it's all in response to his grace. You change, your life changes in response to that truth, in response to God's unconditional love, in response to his his hospitality that he's shown to you at great cost to himself. The whole life is, uh, Christian life is is a life of of saying thank you to God. That is far more powerful than any shaming or, or shallow, empty, inspirational teachers. It is the gospel that is the power of God, not only to save, but it's the gospel as you reflect on it that has the power to change you and to change your life and to change the world and to turn the whole world upside down. What if we all got that this morning? What if we as a church just, we were, had a laser focus on who Jesus is and what he's done and our greatest love and our greatest loyalty is to King Jesus and we're gonna submit all of our priorities and our schedules and our hobbies and our funds everything that we have to his priorities, what would happen in our city? Can you imagine? Fires me up, if you haven't noticed. I'm not here to give some lame self-help talk on Sunday mornings. And if I did, you should, if, if I start doing that, you should leave and go find another church that, that is focused and centered upon who Jesus is and what he has done. Don't expect me to ever move on from that because it's not going to happen. And if it does, you need to bounce me out of here. All right? So the way we're intended to live is to live under the reign of King Jesus in light of the fact that he suffered for us because he had to and he rose again to give us new life out of grace. That's what it means to live under the reign of King King Jesus. And how do we do that? Two ways. First, regularly practice disruption. Um, Sometimes we hear a message like this and, and we feel inspired to be radical like Jesus or like Jason and, or, or Jesus and, and, and uh, do radical things. And it can include that for sure. But it's not limited to that. If, if we just think it's radical stuff, here's what we'll do. We'll choose between radical or nothing. If that's, those are the only two options we have. You know, once Paul moved to another city, he started worrying about the church he left in Thessalonica because all the problems that were there, and he's concerned, how are they? I hope they're okay. And so he wants to know. And so, you know, he can't text anybody or, or FaceTime them or anything like that. And so he sends Timothy back there. Timothy returns, and he reports that they're doing well, but they can use some encouragement. And so Paul writes his very first New Testament book, his first pastoral epistle called First Thessalonians. And he encourages them in that letter. He encourages them. He thanks God for them. He reminds them that the work God is doing is revolutionary. And you know what he does not do a lot of in this book? He does not give them a whole lot of instruction. So when he does give them instruction in that book, it totally stands out. Listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, 
to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. That does not sound very radical to me. Does that sound radical to you? So what's he saying? Part of it is this. You don't, you're passionate about your beliefs. That's good. What he's saying is you don't have to be unnecessarily disruptive. You don't have to go out and try to stir things up to get people to listen to you. You don't have to offend people to, to share the gospel with them. You don't have to be, you know, a jerk for Jesus. Okay. Let the message of the gospel de- be disruptive. Let the, let the message of the gospel be what's offensive. It's disruptive enough and offensive enough all on its own. It does not need any help at all. So we know we have this offensive message, and so our goal is to remove any uh, unnecessary disruptions and, 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 and to love the people that we are talking to. So much, so much sharing the good news is out of a love for ourselves so we can say, I did my job, you all should be like, like me, or, or, or maybe it's how we manage our guilt or, or something like that. But if you genuinely love people, the gospel will lead you to genuinely love people. And if you genuinely love people, then you're going to want what's best for them. And out of that love for them, then you're going to share the good news of Jesus with them. And so when you get to the offensive part, like, yeah, guess what? You're so sinful. God had to die for you. That's how bad you are. Well, guess what? It's same here. So trust the gospel to do its job. If you feel like you have to be offensive in the gospel, it just shows a lack of trust, a lack of faith that you have, lack of belief you have in the gospel to do what it's supposed to do. And I think also he's challenging us today in our culture, our frantic, over-entertained, over-scheduled status quo lives. He says to live quietly, mind our own affairs. He encourages us to make space in our life. Say no to a few things. Make room to love the people that God has placed in your life more and more. Regularly create space in your life to meditate on this disruptive disruptive message of the gospel. And let that message of who Jesus is and what he's done, how you respond to it. He's King Jesus who rules and reigns over all. Let that sink into your hearts and evaluate. Is, is, make time to do this. If my life is going with the flow of the status quo, show me, God. And, and show me how my life should be shaped by our true king. You know, uh, the last few messages, I've given you all one way, one simple way. There are many ways to respond to this, but I, I'm giving you, I'm offering you one way that you can uh, respond to this message, one way that you can practice disruption, and, and you can pray something like this. Lord, please show me 
how you want me to disrupt my life. And if I'm not willing to do it, would you please do it for me because I trust you? Can you pray that? That makes me nervous. Naturally. But God only gives good gifts to his children. You know, he doesn't say, ha ha, you prayed that, I'm going to zap you, mess up your life. Just because you said the wrong prayer. You prayed for patience, so kapow. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, whatever you do, don't pray for patience. Rookie move, don't do it. God will mess with you. God, do whatever it is that you need to do in my life. Mess it up if you need to. It's yours to mess up. But I know that you're bringing renewal out of it. Are you willing to pray that? God, show me how my life needs to be disrupted. If I'm not willing to do it, please do it for me because I trust you. Will you pray that? Pray that on your own with people. Second, welcome it. Welcome the disruption. If following Jesus as king means that he turns our world upside down, then the most disruptive times in our lives, has your life been disrupted any time in the past, I don't know, week or since you've been alive? If, 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 God, if, if following King Jesus means that, that he turns our world upside down, then the most disruptive times in our lives are the times when we have the greatest opportunity to grow from disruptions that simply change our schedule to disruptions that change everything in our life. And it can be painful, it can be confusing, it can be disorienting. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's right, you've been there, and many of us have. And here's the good news. Our text shows us that God is at work in our disruption. He is with you, he is for you. Spiritual change and your spiritual growth, if you want spiritual growth, you want to grow in your relationship with God and become more like Jesus, it only comes through having your life turned upside down. And the scriptures describe it as a process of dying to our old self and growing in our new self in Christ. Things, when the disruption happens, you need to know, things are not getting worse. Things are being renewed. Next week, we're going to set up a baptistry right here, and we're going to do baptisms. And baptism is a picture of how we identify with King Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a profession of faith. And Paul said it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to then rise from the dead unto life, and it is necessary for you and for me to suffer and, and then rise unto new life in Christ. It is how we identify with our King. So, if you have not been baptized yet, Next week is your chance. If you know somebody who needs to be baptized, next week is their chance. And if you need to know someone, please, please talk to me today. If you got a split or whatever, look me up on Facebook, shoot me a message, whatever. And if you're not getting baptized, I want you to be here and you celebrate with them. Celebrate their profession of, of, 
of, of faith. Celebrate their, their upside-down life living for King Jesus. Encourage them in their loyalty and love for Jesus. The destructive reign of sin and self in your life and the world is over. And the disruptive reign of King Jesus is just beginning. And he's calling you and he's calling this church to turn your life upside down, to turn our neighborhoods upside down, to turn our city upside down for the advancement of the gospel and King Jesus. He is calling you to be a part of his revolutionary, disruptive, upside-down, life-changing kingdom. Amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me?